Welcome to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. This week, an in-depth look at the economy and ways lawmakers are trying to fix it. From inflation to worries of a recession, we'll take a look at where we are, how we got here, and where we might be going next. Plus, a couple of big wins for the Biden administration, as some of his key legislation is now expected to clear Congress. Donald Trump returns to Washington, setting the stage for a potential rematch with the president in 2024. And Boeing machinists prepare to walk off the job in a much less union-friendly state. All of that coming up this hour. But first, ballots are out. If you haven't received yours, you might want to call your local county auditor because the election is on August the 2nd. And that means you're probably already seeing a lot of mailers and a lot of campaign ads. I know I have up in my district in Snohomish County. Joining me now is Paul Query. He is the editor and writer of the Washington Observer. You can find more at washingtonobserver.substack.com. And you've been following some of these uh, packs that are spending a lot of money. And I know... It, for at least for me in my district, I haven't seen this many mailers, at least in the last several elections. I mean, this one's getting aggressive. What we're seeing here is Republicans really working to try and exploit what they think is going to be a big year for them. And to do that, what they're trying to do is kind of expand the field that they're playing on. I think you live up in the 21st district. Is that right? Yeah, I'm in there with uh, Senator Marco Lias. He is my state senator, transportation chair, and certainly a lot of the mailers and ads I've been seeing have been targeting him. You know, that had formerly been considered a pretty safe Democratic seat. And the fact that they're coming after Lias um, really indicates, you know, that they think that they've got a historic opportunity to t- try and uh, grab control of one or both houses of the legislature. So why specifically are they going after Marco Lias? Uh, is it because of some of the stuff he's passed as the transportation chair, tax hikes and that massive transportation budget we saw this last year? Yeah, Lias is actually a, a really highly progressive member of the legislature. So I think he's got a voting, voting record that the Republicans think they can exploit. And it's absolutely true that that the the, uh, transportation package that was passed last year um, without Republican support has a lot of tax and fee hikes in it. There's no question about that. We've also seen uh, a lot of these ads targeting Jesse Jensen, who is... He's almost becoming a perennial candidate. I think this is the second or third time he's he's run, and he is trying to run for Congress in the 8th Congressional District. And we've already talked about how it's conservative versus conservative there, but this is going to another level. Yeah, and the thing that I, I wrote about is a mailer that essentially is trying to carve off uh, Donald Trump's supporters from Jesse Jensen, talking about some things, some negative things that he said about the former president. And one of the interesting things about this mailer is it's pretty carefully anonymized. You can't really tell tell where the money comes from, which you can't tell yet. And that's part of a trend that we're seeing in some of these districts, which is that you can't, in the 8th district, if you're a Republican and you hope to get elected in the fall, make a really sort of overt move to bring in Trump supporters, because that's that's going to be a liability in November. So essentially what they're trying to get, do is get the Trump voters to not vote for the other guy. And you know that mailer is coming from somebody who's supporting either Reagan Dunn or Matt Larkin, who are the two other Republicans who are in the race to take on uh, Kim Schreier, who's the incumbent Democrat in that seat. We've also seen some of this over in the 4th Congressional District in eastern Washington, where Dan Newhouse was one of the 10 Republicans that voted for former President Trump's impeachment. And you have a lot of conservatives that are very upset about that. Yeah, there's a crowd over there um, coming at Newhouse from the right. Um, And the most prominent name among that crowd is Lauren Culp, who ran for governor in 2020. 
And there's a pack called Defending Main Street. And their money comes mostly from labor and some cryptocurrency billionaire types. They have sunk the better part of a million dollars into a campaign to try and depress the vote for Lauren Culp, um, pointing out that he's you know been behind on his taxes and pointing out that he's put a lot of his campaign money in his own pocket over the last few years, which is something that I wrote about in The Observer. That's a district where it's pretty common for two Republicans to come out of the primary. They're hoping to drive the conservative vote away from Lauren Culp to some of the other challengers for Newhouse so that Newhouse gets a Democrat in the in the general election, which she, uh, you know, and that would probably allow him to win pretty easily. You know, my take on that race is that even if Newhouse gets Culp, he's likely to win in November because the Democrats in that district would gravitate to Newhouse and that would probably be enough to make the difference. But clearly, the folks who are trying to bring down Culp just don't want to see that kind of R on R race in November. So whether it's the congressional races in the 8th and the 4th, or it's the legislative races we're seeing throughout the state, where is all of this money coming from? Because it is, as you mentioned, a lot of the, the PACs can, can significantly hide who their donors are, but they have to release some information, don't they? Yeah, I mean, eventually everybody has to make some kind of disclosure about where the money comes from. And and it's mostly about timing. Now, if you're operating on state level races in, in Washington, which is to say races for the legislature or the governor, then you're under the Public Disclosure Commission's rules, which are really pretty strict. You can tell where most of that money comes from. If you're operating under the federal rules, which apply if you're running for Congress, there's ways to game those rules in terms of timing so that you can stand up a pack after a deadline, but before an election. And you have, don't have to disclose your donors until later on. In the state-level races, we're seeing money from, on the conservative side, from the Building Industry, Industry Association of Washington, which is the home builders. They're, they've always been a force on the right. You see uh, a lot of money from the Washington Association of Realtors. Uh, they tend to give to both sides, but they lean R, and they're definitely backing sort of more balanced legislature in, um, going forward. Um, on the Democratic side, you see a lot of money from public sector labor unions. And we're talking about the Washington Education Association and a couple of different locals of the service industry, uh, service industry employees union um, who represent nurses and long-term care workers. And they pour a ton of money into politics in Washington state. Well, and at least I've seen in, in my district and, and, you know, seeing some of the ads in, in Seattle media, which covers quite a few districts, uh, a lot of that money at least appears to be on the conservative side. And we, we talked about this at the top as this could be a, a banner year for Republicans, but Washington state's very blue. It's still going to be a, 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 a very high hurdle to clear if Republicans want to take either chamber in the state legislature, isn't it? Yes. I mean, their, their path is narrow, rocky, and steep. I mean, one of the reasons that they're um, campaigning so aggressively ahead of the primary is they want, they're hoping for some positive results in the primary, which will make it easier for them to raise money. And, you know, maybe we'll put the other side on the defensive a little bit. I mean, you can think most of these races, um, there's no real primary challenger. I mean, like Marco Elias, for example. I mean, there might be some token challenger on the Democratic side. I don't know. I haven't looked. But that race really doesn't happen until November. What they're looking for is a result that indicates that 
you know, maybe they have a race that they can work for. Because you can think of the primary as a really big public opinion poll with a very small margin of error. So what are we expecting to see over the next few days ahead of the primary and then certainly as we head to the general? No, you're probably in the thick of it now because a lot of people send their ballots back early. But I think you can expect to hear some radio um, if you're on the Internet, you can expect to see a lot of digital advertising. And I think that you can expect to see some more stuff land in your mailbox over the next few days. All right, Paul Query from the Washington Observer. Thank you so much for your time and insight as always. I'm always happy to be on. Now we have to take a quick break. But when we come back, Mr. Trump goes to Washington, this time as a private citizen. What he's doing when the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Now let's take a closer look at the economy. And for that, here's Elisa Jaffe. Sticker shock over gas costs and food prices, Andy, has to be contributing to this dip in consumer confidence. Yeah, it's a dip, but it's not a giant dip. Uh, consumer confidence was really high in, uh, in June, 98.4%. It dropped a few points down to 95.7%. Now, if that was your temperature, you'd be a little concerned because you got to keep your temperature up there. And people are concerned about it with the economy too, that uh, it hasn't been this low since February of 2021. And if you can remember that far back, which is only about a year and a half ago, that's when vaccines started to go in a lot of people's arms and people were just celebrating the fact that perhaps they could all get back to work and things would get normal again. And they kind of got normal for a while, and they've been that way. And that's where the economy has soared and gross domestic product went up. People got hired. But then things slowed down again last winter uh, with high gas prices, the war in Ukraine. And this consumer confidence has been slipping ever since. And it's really not a surprise when gas and food prices go up, consumer confidence goes down. You see Walmart and McDonald's saying that their average customers, who are mostly middle-class folks, uh, are spending a lot less, especially only on essentials. So when that starts to happen, that's when you hear recession fears. And we've had a gross domestic product drop for one quarter. They expect it will drop another quarter again when the numbers come out later this week. So those are big problems that the economy has to deal with. But we've never seen a recession happen where inflation is still roaring ahead. So it's a very hard thing to control. And uh, the major economists, as well as the politicians, are really just scrambling to figure out how to fix this. And you were talking about the gas prices. There's a new U.S. Treasury Department analysis that just came out today that estimates that gas prices would be even higher if Biden hadn't released oil from the petroleum reserve. Yeah, that seems a bit suspect. And I'll tell you why. Because the Biden administration has been releasing a million barrels a day from the Federal Reserve since mid to early winter. And it had almost no effect on gas prices from them then until just recently. So I think there are other factors involved in that. It, 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 that extra supply, that million barrels of gallon, a million gallons a day um, is a good thing. But it's not necessarily the thing that's bringing gas prices down. I'm not quite sure what it is, but here on the East coast, uh, we've gone from over $5 a gallon to around four twenty three, four thirty a gallon on average, which 
I know if you're on the West Coast, you'd be going, wow, the happy days are here again. But that is still pretty high for the East Coast because we don't have quite as much tax on our gas as folks in Washington State, California, and Oregon. So it's a little bit different here. And also, this consumer confidence uh, survey came out at a time where gas prices were still extraordinarily high. They hadn't dropped that 50 to 70 cents a gallon in some places. So we could see the numbers tick back up next month. We don't know. There's just too many factors involved in this. This November, the people are going to vote to stop the destruction of our country. Former President Trump back in the country's capital for the first time since leaving office. Well, I want to thank everybody. And it's wonderful to see so many friends and very, very familiar faces. Andy, tell us what he's doing and what he was saying at this America First Policy Institute summit. Well, what's interesting is that it's a very different Donald Trump than you see on the campaign trail. It's not a lot of yelling and screaming and cursing, which we've heard much more of recently, uh, and name-calling. He This is a policy forum in Washington, the America First policy. It's his first time back in Washington since he left uh, on inaugural day for Joe Biden. And he's talking to these policymakers, trying to figure out how they can game a, a win to get the House and Senate back and eventually get the White House back. So that's what he's talking about. And it's his usual themes of tougher law enforcement, tougher on drugs, tougher on immigration, how bad Joe Biden is and how bad the Democrats are. It's nothing that we haven't heard before. But what's interesting is that people who had initially condemned President Trump on the day of the insurrection and in Lindsey Graham's case, even before he was first elected and said that uh, Donald Trump was a kook, a nut and a danger to our society. He came up and spoke and said that uh, Donald Trump is the vehicle to a stronger America. And he spent his time uh, on stage before Donald Trump came on saying that the former president was one of the greatest presidents, that he likes him a lot and he misses him in Washington, which is extraordinary for a guy on January 6th after the attack says, I'm done with Donald Trump. Some of the other Republican leaders are in the room with him. He's not getting what you'd call um, standing ovations, a lot of tepid, polite applause for some of the things he's saying. And it'll be interesting to see where this goes. I'd love to hear the comparison because he's there and he's arguing that the U.S. has become a cesspool of crime and that with soaring inflation, the U.S. has become a beggar nation. We've become a beggar nation groveling to other countries for energy. Compare that to former Vice President Mike Pence, who addressed another D.C. gathering in an earlier appearance. Well, uh, Mike Pence, of course, has been hitting a theme that certainly Donald Trump cannot possibly like. He says, we can't keep litigating the past. We can't keep uh, talking about an election that was lost and, and going on and on and on. Of course, Donald Trump has yet to concede that he actually lost the election. To this day, he continues to say that it was stolen from him, that it was fraud. But what's interesting is that this America First Policy Group, a spokesperson for the group, uh, was interviewed by one of our ABC reporters today and was asked, did Donald Trump lose the election? Yes or no? And that spokesperson for this group that Donald Trump's speaking for today said, yes, he lost the election. Uh, to which our reporter said to us in an email, he says, well, that spokesperson's not going to be working for them much longer. It's it's really maddening to see the fear that Donald Trump continues to invoke in fellow Republicans because he seems to still have this power over his supporters that when they try to go for re-election, I mean, you see it with Liz Cheney. Uh, Liz Cheney, who was supposedly in a safe seat in her home state, looks like she's going to lose her primary, not even the main election, her primary. 
because of Donald Trump. Did he say anything that laid the groundwork for him possibly having a presidential run? Did he just come right out and say it? And did Mike Pence say that? He may have, and I didn't see it, but most of it was policy talk. And the same thing with Mike Pence. These guys are too smart to say, I'm going to declare I'm running for president today. That's something that they're going to they're gonna make for the biggest splash possible. But certainly they're not doing these speeches for their health. They're doing it because they're setting up uh, the possibility that either one of them may run for president. Be interesting to see if either one of them run against each other in a primary. ABC's Andy Field in Washington. Thank you, Andy. We have to take another break, but when we come back, more on the U.S. economy. Are we actually in a recession? And if not, can we avoid one? When the Northwest Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. Year to date, the U.S. economy, measured by the gross domestic product, has shrunk by nearly 1%. Traditionally, two consecutive quarters of negative growth constitutes a recession, but some economists argue that this is not the case. Joining me now is ABC's Dave Packer. A recession has a very specific meaning, doesn't it? It does. I, and, you know, there is this traditional idea that, you know, you have two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth, and, and the last time around, uh, we had a contraction of 0.4% in the first three months of the year. Cumulatively, we're up to the year, uh, as you said, uh, 0.9%, basically 1%. Under normal circumstances, you would say, okay, we're in a recession, but you say, now, hold on a second. A recession doesn't look like this, where you have a very low unemployment, 3.2% unemployment at a basically a 50-year low. And you generally don't have this inflation, which is indicative of a, a roaring economy, not uh, an economy that, that is about to go off the cliff. So we had the second rate hike try to try to tamp down that, that inflation. But again, uh, you have low unemployment. You have uh, basically indications that prices are, are going higher, and that usually means people are buying more. Well, we've talked to economists about this and uh, about the ridiculous levels of inflation we're seeing. And, and one of the things that we've heard, and of course, this is one economist's take, is that a recession may be the only way to deal with inflation. Obviously, that's a, a very supply side way of, of looking at things. But what's been res the response from the Federal Reserve and the White House? Well, that's, you know, the Federal Reserve, as we said, it has raised rates. And that's kind of the, you know, the the hammer, as it were, on the economy to try to get people to uh, curtail their spending. And the flip side of that, of course, is that you have higher uh, prices to, to borrow money. And that means your car loans, your student loans, your mortgages, new mortgages uh, being signed or refinanced. Um, all of those things uh, are going to go higher, uh, th those rates. And uh, those are things that will slow things down. Now, with these recessionary pressures, uh, the GDP being uh, lower for two consecutive quarters, could could it be overkill? Could we really send the economy into recession? That's the real balancing act that we have right now. But, you know, there are those who are saying, well, wait a minute, this GDP number, it might not be because people are spending less, but it may be that they can't buy more because the supply chain is bottled up. So maybe this wouldn't be a lower GDP number if 
those chips were flowing into General Motors and they were able to put them in cars and get more cars on the lot and things like that. Well, and certainly it's uh, an election year, so Republicans are blaming President Biden for a lot of this. But inflation and a recession, there are so many factors involved here. You mentioned the supply chain problems. Uh, Obviously, we have gas prices, which are are not set by the president or by Congress. They're set on, on the global market. You have the invasion of Ukraine adding to all of this. This is just kind of, kind of a perfect storm for a, a bad or at least awkward economy. It is. And, and people are feeling it. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people listening to this might be saying, well, wait a minute, stop with all this technical stuff. I feel like I'm in a recession right now. I mean, I, I, I can't. I, my dollar is not going as far as it did uh, months ago or a year ago. And I'm having trouble making ends meet. And, and that's legitimate. I mean, it, folks are having if it's not a real recession, it's certainly a sediment you know, recession where people are thinking, geez, I just don't feel like I'm in a place, you know, where I'm getting ahead. And that's that's very real. So I think that's something that, you know, we have to look at. But again, what's causing that? Is that GDP being lower? Is that inflation being higher? It's probably got more to do with inflation. And when you talk about inflation, you're talking about not just what's happening here and the Fed can only do so much. But over in Europe, you know, that's the elephant in the room with inflation, because energy supplies like natural gas coming out of Russia are are cut off. Uh, Food supplies coming out of Ukraine are cut off. And those commodity prices, even if it's caused by something happening there, uh, higher commodity prices there affect commodity prices all around the world. So we all wind up paying more. So this is really not just a U.S. problem. No, it's it's definitely not. And, you know, they're experiencing the same sort of things in most of the developed countries around the world right now. So it's kind of easy to blame whoever happens to be in the White House or in Congress right now. But uh, it kind of goes beyond what's happening in the United States. Now, whether, you know, the current administration or or folks in Congress right now could do things that they're not doing, maybe not doing enough. Maybe we're too late to do. They they blame the Fed for not raising rates high enough early enough. Uh, Yeah, sure. That's up for debate. But there's no denying that there's a lot of global headwinds that are feeding into the situation we're in right now in the U.S. So what can be done? You know, it's it's one it's really that balancing act. We raise interest rates and we, we see where we are. You want to kind of slow down the economy, which is almost counterintuitive to say, wait a minute, we we, we do we want to slow it down more. But don't forget, we you know, th- this inflation is really, I think, the, the bigger problem right now. That's the one that's got folks not, you know, being able to make ends meet where they were with the same paycheck a few months ago. So raising those interest rates, but at the same time, not too much, because, you know, if you, you don't want to send this economy spiraling down, but you do want to cool it off. How you do that, how much, this is the subject for debate among Many economists right now. Many economists that are much more educated than you or I, that's for sure. That's correct. (laughs) Dave Packer, ABC News correspondent in New York, thank you so much. You got it, Jeff. Take care. Still to come, a pair of legislative wins for President Biden. But is it too soon to declare victory when the Northwest Politicast continues after this? Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. A big semiconductor bill headed to the president's desk after final approval by the U.S. House of Representatives. We've got 217 yes votes for the ship's bill. And the House has passed it. Elisa Jaffe gets more on this bipartisan measure to boost production of computer chips here in America. 
from ABC's Justin Finch. I'm a no on the Senate chips bill. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy rebuking Democratic policies, letting it be known where he stands on that bipartisan act. Justin, why was he so against domestic production of microchips and semiconductors? This was a real interesting turn of events just coming off of yesterday's uh, passage of the CHIPS Act in the Senate. The thought was it would perhaps sail through the House. Not quite. Uh, We saw the House Republican whips yesterday uh, getting out the word that they should not support this measure in the House. They were saying it was pretty much corporate welfare, that it would not do a whole lot to the economic landscape that would instead give free money to big businesses to do something they could do on their own. Uh, Of course, the bill did wind up passing today in the House, despite that effort. The thing is, is that this was seen as a way in the Senate and by many members in the House as a way to potentially spread out this new economic engine across the U.S., not isolated to certain areas, but to give several states here a, a chance to have Uh, a real strong economic future based on these microchips that are in everything. The people who were in the House kind of warning against voting for this were saying this could really be an easy way for these big corporations to get free government money, and it shouldn't be our place to just rubber stamp that. But haven't the shortages of these chips contributed to inflation? That is being seen as one of the major factors in uh inflation, and also a lot of the concerns here about national security here in the U.S. These microchips are in everything from your cell phones to your cars to missiles and medical devices here. And even before the pandemic happened, the supply of microchips was actually drying up. You know, back in 1990, the U.S. made about 37 percent of the world's microchips. And at that point, they were in everything yet. So the U.S. saying here, if we get in front of this industry, become leaders It could really set us up for a very prosperous future and one in which we are not reliant on countries far away for a critical good. Yeah, they're saying that it's designed to make the U.S. more competitive with China. And at the same time, it sounds like we're hearing that China is sending this warning of serious consequences to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi if she stops in Taiwan during her trip to Asia. There was also uh, that really tense phone call between President Xi and President Biden, by all accounts, based on the readout that we have seen, uh, essentially saying you're playing with fire if you stand with Taiwan on this independence. The U.S. has said for a very long time that they want to not directly involve themselves in that conflict unless things go a different direction and Taiwan needs the defense and help of the West. Unclear, really, if this is just posturing or if there's more to it, but obviously the Russia-Ukraine war is having reverberations around the world. Sides have been drawn here. And here in Washington, there is a lot of concern, too, because bipartisan lawmakers now saying that uh, a U.S. lawmaker should not feel pressure to visit another country by another outside country. What kind of message would it send if Nancy Pelosi and others on her or trip were to say, we're not going to go after a run up to. However, her office not speaking about her travels. ABC's Justin Finch. Thank you, Justin. And that's Elisa Jaffe. It's not just the chip bill. The White House is getting yet another victory with the help of a longtime thorn in the president's side. We get more on that 
from Greg Hersholt and Manda Factor. In a surprise move, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin announced that not only had he reached an agreement with Majority Leader Chuck Schumer on a major health care-focused spending package, he had also signed on to climate and energy provisions. ABC News White House correspondent Karen Travers is with us on our Northwest Newsline. How the heck did this happen, Karen? Yeah, I mean, this is pretty incredible. It was a major breakthrough. And, you know, it seems certainly like a reversal from Joe Manchin. He did an interview with Punchbowl News in D.C. and said that he was never out. He hasn't walked away from the table, that he was working with Chuck Schumer and was trying to get to a place where he could uh, get to an agreement on this. But certainly Democrats and White House officials you've been talking to over the past couple of weeks felt like he was out and that uh, this agreement uh, was very elusive and that anything resembling this type of significant legislation was dead. It was not going to happen. But now they've kind of pulled a rabbit out of the hat and they have announced an agreement on this domestic agenda that would include $370 billion for energy and climate initiatives that Democrats say would reduce carbon emissions by roughly 40% by the year 2030. This legislation would allow Medicaid care to negotiate the prices of medication for the first time, capping out-of-pocket costs at $2,000. It includes $64 billion to extend subsidies for people who buy health insurance under Obamacare. And to pay for this, there will be tax increases on big corporations and wealthy Americans. But two big things you're going to hear from Democrats as they try to get this across the finish line. They say it tackles two major things climate change and inflation. And that second thing, inflation, that was, of course, the big priority for Joe Manchin, which is why he was squeamish and why he walked away from negotiations so many times, because he didn't think you could spend money while inflation was so high. This, though, has a lot of money, $300 billion for deficit reduction, which is a big priority for him and what the White House says will be a big thing to help fight inflation right now. Manchin has frustrated the president so often and, and mm-hmm. blocked many of his initiatives. Do we know anything about the, the interaction between Joe Manchin and, and Joe Biden? There really hasn't been any. The president has been asked about this a couple of times in recent weeks, and he has said he hasn't talked to Joe Manchin. You know, remember when all of this fell apart in recent weeks, when Manchin said, I'm not, I can't get on board with anything that has funding for the climate provisions. The president was asked about this, and, you know, did Manchin negotiate in good faith? Was Manchin, uh, you know, not uh, being up front with the White House? The president said a couple of times, I haven't talked to Joe Manchin. So really, this was happening just on Capitol Hill. And that was a kind of a striking state of play that the president wasn't engaged with Manchin on this. But I think based on what we see now, it does sound like Manchin and Schumer were working these things out to see if they could get to this point. But I got to say, you know, with the numbers coming out today that you guys just mentioned on GDP and this technical recession right now, this is a very significant headline for the president. This is something they can actually point to now to say, here, we're taking action, as the president put it in a statement. This is the action he says the American people have been waiting for. It actually gives them something good to talk about right now. And we're going to see him take it for a spin this afternoon with remarks on the economy at the White House. Karen, thanks for the updates. ABC News White House correspondent Karen Travers. And that's Manda Factor and Greg Herschel. We have to take another quick break, but when we come back, Boeing machinists are preparing to walk off the job as they try to send a message to the company in a deep red state when the Northwest Politicast continues in just a moment. Thank you. 
Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. Boeing machinists have voted to strike, but not here in Washington State. Nearly 2,500 workers at three St. Louis area factories are preparing to walk off the job starting on August 1st. Joining us now is Aaron Gregg. He's a business reporter for the Washington Post. And let's start with those machinists. What's the union saying is the reason for the strike? So the union is really doubling down on retirement benefits here. Their pension was phased out a few years back, and they now sort of recognize this as their one shot at getting a significantly better retirement situation. The company was prepared to offer a 10% 401k match, Uh, which definitely outperforms uh, a lot of what you'd see in the commercial sector. But the union is saying that this is pennies compared to what a pension would offer or would have offered in a previous age. So this is really kind of a showdown over what the standard should be as far as Boeing retirement benefits. Pensions are are really kind of disappearing, but back in the the 40s and 50s and when they first started, they were supposed to be, you know, part of that three-legged stool, pensions, 401ks, and Social Security, but we're really not seeing them much anymore, are we? That's true. the, The norm for most of the business community at this point is 401k. The union is definitely in a position where they're kind of they're looking at uh, a previous decade as far as what their benefits should possibly look like. Um, they think that their benefits have been chipped away uh, justifiably uh, for a very long time, and they kind of see this as a moment to uh, basically claw back uh, the benefits that were lost years ago. So, what planes are manufactured at these plants where the employees may walk out on strike? So, the St. Louis plant. Uh, feeds into Boeing's defense business. It's based in Arlington, Virginia, but they have factories spread out all across the country. Um, In St. Louis, they produce the F-15, F-18, and the T-7 trainer. These are uh, vital Air Force jets. Uh, In some cases, uh, the business itself has been referred to as a critical to U.S. national security. And it accounts for about $3.5 billion into uh, Boeing's 2022 revenue, according to a recent estimate by Jeffrey's Investment Bank. So this is a pretty high-stakes thing for Boeing here. They really need to keep these production lines running, and they can't afford any delays that might cause them to be charged by the government uh, more than what than what they're already paying. Now for decades, Boeing was based here in Seattle. They still manufacture thousands of commercial jets in the area, but the company has expanded or moved to other states largely due to the strong union presence here in Washington. Are workers starting to get more organized in these more conservative, business-friendly states like Missouri? That's a good question. I think that you're seeing the, the organized labor movement in general across all industries really going for it right now. They, they want to push as hard as they can on contract actions, and they're also expanding into new industries. You saw uh, Apple and Amazon, for example, uh, ha- have their stores and, fa- and facilities successfully unionized for the first time in history recently. Uh, as far as aerospace, unions have a particular advantage in that these are highly skilled workers. There's a labor shortage in everywhere, in every industry you can look at right now, uh, even fast food. But with Boeing, we're talking about highly skilled people, uh, engineers and machinists who do very specific tasks uh, with zero margin for error. It's going to be very hard for Boeing to find 
people to replace them once they walk off the job. And uh, for that reason, I think the union has kind of got them between a rock and a hard place here. So what has the company said in response? The company said uh, that obviously they're disappointed that their offer was voted down. They're just doubling back on the idea that um, they did make quite a, a generous offer in their, their description. A 10% 401k match is nothing to sneeze at. I think that most people that have a 401k would, would look at that and say, wow, that's, that's a pretty good offer. However, as I said earlier, uh, the union is comparing this to previous pensions, and that's the standard that they are going off of. Um, at least they're not happy with what they're seeing from Boeing at this point. So are we expecting the workers to walk off the job, or is there some sort of negotiation going on at the moment? What What are we expecting to see between now and August 1st? Well, it, it's a good question. I think that it's always possible that a last-minute deal could avert the strike. I think that that's probably the, the union's best-case scenario is that uh, Boeing sort of panics and comes up with a much better offer, and that allows them to go right back to the bargaining table. Um, the reason that this was, one reason this was voted down was that the, the union's bargaining committee recommended to its members that they do so. So this is part of their negotiation tactic. I think that if Boeing doesn't come up with an offer, we will see a strike, and it could get ugly. All right, Aaron Gregg, reporter for The Washington Post. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And that will do it for this episode of the Northwest Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. For more, be sure to check out some of our other shows, such as Northwest News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and Puget Sound Now with Bill Swartz. All are available at nwnewsradio.com or on your favorite podcast app. Now, we're off for the next few weeks for a much-needed vacation, but we'll be back on August 12th with a complete wrap-up of the Washington State primaries and a look ahead to the general election. I'm Jeff Pogelet. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you soon.